From KCRW, this is Greater LA. I'm Steve Chiatakis with the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Here's a question you may have on your mind. California is spending a lot of money, tax money from you and me, on homelessness. So why isn't it getting better? Governor Gavin Newsom's fight against homelessness is costing more than $20 billion and counting, with a lot of that going toward local governments. But our taxpayers, again, you and me, are we getting the best bang for the buck? KCRW's Anna Scott covers housing and homelessness. Part of her job is following all that money, and she's done just that with a new investigation. An investigation, by the way, that you can find at KCRW.com. And Anna is here now to talk about it. Hi, Anna. Hi, Steve. What is this investigation about? What have you been looking into as far as the money goes? I've been looking into a Los Angeles-based real estate developer called Shangri-La Industries that was a major recipient of Governor Gavin Newsom's Home Key program. So you might remember this. We've talked about it on the show before. This started in 2020, and Home Key was the plan to turn existing buildings, mostly hotels and motels, into permanent housing for homeless people. The idea being that these conversions are cheaper and faster than building new apartments from the ground up. Newsom's put more than $3 billion into Home Key so far. And this developer, Shangri-La Industries, got a lot of that money, more than $114 million for seven projects. The projects are around Southern California and the Central Coast. So they go from Thousand Oaks up to Salinas, and there are a couple in San Bernardino County. And this year, it became clear that Shangri-La was going into major financial distress on multiple projects. I wanted to find out what happened because most of these projects are not even fully renovated yet. So where did all that money go? All right. Do you have an example for us? Sure. One of Shangri-La's projects is a motel conversion in Thousand Oaks, so just north of Los Angeles County. And if you look at what happened there, it reflects a pattern that you can see with all their home key projects. They got a bunch of money through the program directly from the state. In this case, in Thousand Oaks, it was about $26 million dollars which city officials in Thousand Oaks say was supposed to cover buying this motel, renovating it, and then even some operating costs once it was open and had tenants living in it. But instead of doing all that with the home key money, the developer went out and took two private loans out on the property for more than $10 million, missed payments on those loans, and the lender then started foreclosure proceedings. The building right now, it's not finished, it's empty, At this point, between the loans and the Home Key Award, almost $40 million has gone into this. And the future now is uncertain for this property and who is going to have ownership over it. And you see this over and over with this company's projects. An award, then a private loan, then missed payments. And then all of this has escalated into legal battles. And in two cases, their buildings in Redlands and in Salinas have been put under the management of a court-appointed receiver now, who's going to have to be sorting out the finances and debts and coming up with a plan to, to sell these properties potentially or just ensure their future somehow. So how does the company, this company, Shangri-La, explain all of this? The You know, we get the, the award money and then we take out, you know, private loans and blah, blah, blah. 
I talked to Andy Myers, who's the owner and CEO of Shangri-La Industries, and he says that they ran into problems mostly beyond his control. Rising interest rates, supply chain problems, cost overages. He also blames state officials who have been overseeing HomeKey for moving slowly on certain contracts that he says have cost his company millions of dollars in property taxes that they didn't expect to pay. And he says he's working on still refinancing these deals. He's trying to figure out a solution so that Shangri-La can still finish all of its projects. I believe that I'm working on a global solution where we could kind of regain control of everything. Now, as I've said, they've already lost control of two out of seven properties. And the State Department of Housing and Community Development, which oversees HomeKey, says that Shangri-La violated the rules of the program by taking out these private loans against these projects. And it's conducting an investigation and didn't want to comment any further. Didn't want to comment any further. So this is, this is a big mess. Does Shangri-La have a track record in affordable housing? What's their past? They do have a track record, but my reporting finds it's a checkered track record. And if the state had done more research, maybe they wouldn't have given them $114 million in home key funds. Now, I'll back up here for a moment to say that Shangri-La is not working alone on these projects. They're partnered with a well-known Santa Monica-based homeless services nonprofit called Step Up on Second. And they really pitched themselves to state officials as a dream team. Shangri-La was the financial powerhouse, as they themselves put it in application documents. Well, Step Up is this organization that has been around a long time providing permanent supportive housing. I spoke with the president and CEO of that organization, Todd Lipka, and he said he had no idea about Shangri-La's financial situation until this fall. Surprised and shocked and very dismayed. The possibility that people may not get housed is crushing. So on paper, these organizations looked like a really strong duo. And they're also politically connected. They have close ties to Governor Newsom. For example, there's a man named Phil Mangano who served as an advisor to Newsom on homelessness and has also worked with Shangri-La and Step Up and even helped put together at least one of their home key deals. So impressive credentials, yes. But three years ago, KCRW reported on a very troubled project by the same partnership here in Los Angeles that was funded through Proposition HHH, if you remember that, the city bond measure. And in my reporting, I also found a lawsuit filed in 2022 by Wells Fargo Bank against the head of Shangri-La, Andy Myers, and the CFO of Shangri-La, Cody Holmes, alleging fraud, alleging that they used business accounts for personal expenses and deposited $3 million in what the bank called bogus checks. That case was settled privately, but whether or not the state saw that history, they went on to hand them a huge chunk of home key money. That's that $114 million. So, so does anyone know where that money, $114 million, went? Well, Myers pointed to the budget overruns and the delays at the state level that he says are responsible for eating up a lot of that money. But court documents paint a much more damning picture. One lender who is suing Shangri-La accuses them of running a, quote, real estate Ponzi scheme, meaning that they receive money for specific projects, but then instead of dedicating it to those projects, they spread it around, used it to bail out failing ventures, and essentially ran a financial shell game, which Myers denies, but the case is going through court. What does all this mean, Anna, for, for the hundreds of unhoused people? I mean, th th that's what we're talking about here, the hundreds upon hundreds of unhoused people who were supposed to get apartments from Shangri-La's home key 
projects. They're supposed to be housed and they're not. Yeah, you could say there are a few layers of victims here. And first off, there are the people who are supposed to be housed in these projects. In some cases, they're on the street. In King City, in Monterey County, there's a home key project there that Shangri-La had that was supposed to house about 40 specific people who'd been camped by a river there. Right now, they don't have that option. So the city is paying out of pocket to put those people up in a motel instead. And then there are people who are living in the few Shangri-La buildings that have opened. I visited one of those projects in Redlands and talked to a resident who had been on the street for eight years before moving in there. And he said that having a roof over his head is huge for his well-being and his mental health. His name is Mike Cutler. When you've been homeless eight years in your own town and being looked at by people that you, you feel like you can't even look at them anymore, now I'm to the point I stuck out the rough part. I got to find the people in here that really care. And he feels like he has found people who really care. While at the same time, the building he lives in is now in the hands of a court-appointed receiver. And to be clear, nobody is talking about kicking people like Mike Cutler out on the street. There's another property in Salinas with about a dozen tenants that's also in receivership. And I even talked to the lawyer for the lender there who's suing and who had asked for the receiver. And he said that lender is committed to working with the city to try to finish this project as it was intended. But that brings us to the second victim here, which is taxpayers. If cities, counties, the state find a way to finish these projects, that could cost even more in public funds. You heard about King City paying to put people up in a motel. And already $114 million in state money has gone into these projects. And then finally, there are lenders and banks who say that they got stiffed in these deals for millions of dollars. And in some cases, they may just have to eat that loss. So let's circle back, Anna, to that $20 billion I mentioned at the top that Governor Newsom is putting into solving homelessness. Is is Shangri-La this one-off, unique case? Or are there a lot of situations like this going on with, with Home Key and with other programs, too, where we're just we're, we're having to follow the money and it's just not all adding up? Well, there are some legislators in California who are asking that exact same question. One that I spoke to is Senator Dave Cortezi from San Jose, and he and some other state lawmakers earlier this year asked for an audit of state homelessness spending. Now, that was before this scandal involving Shangri-La made the news, but he said that that ask came from a general concern about whether all these billions of dollars are being put to their best use. And he expects that the forthcoming audit will shed some light on exactly what you asked, whether the situation with Shangri-La is an isolated case or if it's reflective of bigger patterns of waste. KCRW's Anna Scott on the housing beat for us today. Read the full story, by the way, which was produced with the California Newsroom at our website, kcrw.com. Anna, thanks for coming on. Thanks for your work on this. Thank you. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. 
In just a few minutes on Greater L.A., the magic of tamales and Gustavo Ariana will help us wrap our heads around the tradition. But first, to a big labor story in the tumultuous world of coffee making. According to Starbucks Workers United, that's a national organizing group, there are now more than 9,000 workers at hundreds of Starbucks locations all across the country who have voted to organize. The thing is, not one of them has managed to get a collective bargaining agreement from Starbucks. The company's also closed some of its stores. Well, now the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, is accusing Starbucks of illegal union-busting behavior to suppress organizing efforts. And it's trying to force the company to reopen some of those stores, six of them here in L.A., and bring back workers who were laid off or transferred. But can the government force Starbucks stores to reopen? Sabah Wahid is the director of the UCLA Labor Center. Sabah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Steve. So first, this legal question. Can the federal government actually force a company to reopen its stores? What's going to happen is that this is going to go to court. And if if they can prove that Starbucks closed these stores as a retaliation to unionizing efforts, then yes, they can require them to reopen the stores in the same way that if they fired a worker uh, for organizing, that worker can be reinstated and paid back wages. The, the board that you described, the NLRIB, are there basically to be kind of the referee between these kinds of unionizing efforts. And so if they see wrongdoing, they can call it out and then start an administrative process to address the issue. But if Starbucks says that they they close the store because it's not profitable or for whatever reason, again, it seems problematic to me that the government would say you have to reopen that. So I get it. They're 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 working. You know, they, they can't punish somebody for unionizing or organizing. But at the same time, it's like whatever Starbucks says, the government says, no, that's not true. I mean, how does it how does it know? Well, that's why it's going to go through like a court process is to understand what happened. So if Starbucks says like we close them because of profit and because we generally close stores and we open stores and that's just our doing business, then they don't have to reopen those stores. But if it becomes clear and, you know, it's all about the evidence, we'll have, you know, they'll have to prove that it was closed because of retaliation, then you're violating the law. Then you closed it in violation. Has this ever happened before? There have. I actually looked around and there have been cases where um, there's a union effort and suddenly like a plant closes or a store closes. The, the few that I found, um, those got settled out of court. It didn't get to the point where the government said, open it now. Are these stores, and I guess another wrinkle in all of this is whether the company owns the stores or whether they're franchises. Do, do we know? All the stores that have been unionized have been in company-owned stores, not the franchises. Not franchises. So is there a difference then between what the NLRB can do to a store owned by Starbucks, in this case, versus one owned by a franchisee? No, because each of the union efforts have been at the individual stores. Um, So it's basically like Starbucks is negotiating 350 contracts, which every one of these work sites So if it was a franchisee, then the union would be negotiating with the owner of that franchisee. 
All of these sites are owned by Starbucks, so each one of these contracts will be negotiated with Starbucks. Negotiated, but it hasn't been negotiated as yet, right? These, I, as I mentioned at the top, there, there's there's no collective bargaining going on at the moment. There is not. That's correct. Although Starbucks, around all of this other stuff um, happening, has reached out to the union asking to restart the contract negotiations. And often it's a tactic when employers are trying to cut down some of the momentum is to drag your feet with the contracts. We definitely saw that in the Starbucks is, is that they hadn't met since May of this year to actually negotiate. And and it's not just Starbucks. I mean, we've been hearing about all these union efforts in in many sectors of the economy. We just had, you know, this so-called hot labor summer, you know, SAG-AFTRA and the the Writers Guild and all these other folks who have been um, taking to the streets, hotel workers and hospital workers as well. I mean, what we don't hear is how tough it is to actually get a collective bargaining agreement, even if you do have a union. Why is it, I mean, why is it so difficult sometimes to even get the two sides to the table? I almost see it as tears. So when you have like the, you know, the entertainment industry and the auto industry that have had unions and have a collective bargaining process, like what we really saw there is that they came into the table with higher demands. Um, and much bigger ones. And so there was there's a boldness that was happening in those unions. Um, and then I think it trickles down. So you see like, oh, wow, look at the like the major wins that these unions who have been around were able to do this time around. Yeah. So so when you see new efforts in industries that don't already have that history, there's obviously an incentive to stop it um, in order to keep the balance of the workers and employers the way it is. So if you read Starbucks materials, there's a lot of like, hey, it's really better if we negotiate directly with each other. Like, let's make this a manager to employee relationship. And, you know, something like COVID comes around and then workers really see that like the the individual to individual doesn't work and you need collective power in order to be able to negotiate bigger terms. Starbucks has um, just days to respond to the complaint. Uh, what are the next steps in this in this situation? Where where do you see this going? You said it's headed to court. It will head to court um, because now they have to see, did they close the shops? Was it retaliation? Was it the cost of doing business? So a lot of things can happen. They can decide to settle some of this before it goes to court. It can go to court. A verdict comes out. Either sides can appeal that process and they can... We'll, you know, we'll see over the next year how this is going to unfold. Sabah Wahid, the director of the UCLA Labor Center. Thanks for coming on and explaining it to us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Moving on now with Greater LA from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Tomorrow on the program, for nearly a century, this group has been meeting up to have breakfast You'll hear from them coming up tomorrow on the show. Today, we're going to talk about food, though. The holidays, of course, a time of joy and stress and lights and lots and lots of food. And you probably have your own tradition with family and or friends, a turkey or ham, lamb in my case, veggies for days. And one that is high on the list for a lot of folks is the tamale. 
all that wrapped goodness going on in household after household all over greater L.A. And our usual Orange County Oracle, Gustavo Ariano, is here with some history and significance of tamales and a personal story as well. Hey, Gustavo. Hola, Steve. You can enjoy, by the way, tamales any time of the year, but they have this special significance this time of year. How did that come about? It's really something that you see in the United States more so than Mexico. And really, it's because, uh, for two things. Tamales, first and foremost, it's an incredibly hearty meal. Whether they're stuffed with chicken, with beef, whether they're Guatemalan, Mexican, even the Colombian version of tamales, it's a lot of food. And also to make them is laborious. And you can't really, you can make them on your own, but that's a really the sad thing. So usually what you have are what's called tamaladas, uh, tamale-making sessions, where you get members of the family family, friends, whatever, and you spend an entire day just making hundreds of tamales and then, you know, sending them off to, to whoever needs them. And, and that is the epitome of a holiday banquet. I, I know there have been festivals for tamales, right? All through the holiday season. A lot of them have passed, but but that seems like it's been on the rise in the past few years. Since the tamale is such a integral part now of Southern California's culinary scene, especially right now, everyone wants tamales. And to make it easier, you know, sometimes you maybe don't know a Mexican family or don't have Latino friends, but you still want your tamales and you still want the conviviality of all that. So hence a tamale festival. They're, they're all incredibly crowded. So I don't go to them because, hey, I have my family. That's my tamale festival. You mentioned the different kinds of tamales, but it is all about the masa, isn't it? Tamales almost universally are made from masa. So, you know, corn processed. So you could kind of, you could kind of call it dough, but not really. And it depends on what part of Mexico you're from or what part of Latin America you're from. It's going to come out different. So northern and central Mexico, it's going to be a little bit uh, thicker to crisp it up more. In Central America, it's going to be softer. You wrap them in, in banana leaves. You go down to, uh, you know, the, the Caribbean has their own styles called pastelitos. Colombia has their own styles whose name escapes me right now. But every Everywhere the masa preparation is going to be different. Of course, every family is going to be having their own tricks or their own style of tamal that they uh, that they make more than others. So, like my mom, she would usually make them just uh, uh, red pork, uh, red chili with pork, rajas con queso, which is going to be strips of serranos with uh, cheese. Sometimes mm. dessert tamales, but she never she would never make chicken tamales. Other people, of course, that's all they do: chicken tamales. So tell me a little bit more about your family tradition. You do have the tradition of tamales, right? Your mother and your abuelita, right? So when I was growing up, my mom and her sister, some of her sisters and some of the cousins would come over to our house. Then as they had their own families, my mom would teach my uh, my sisters how to do it. Now my mom has passed away. And so my sister carries on the tradition and makes them for the family. And same thing with my grandma. I mean, my grandma passed away this year at 100. But up until like two years ago, she was still there with me. And every family is going to be different. And so the professor uh, from USC, Natalia Molina, she wrote this great essay for the LA Times about how it's important to carry on these traditions, but once you get into the third or fourth generation, once you're more Americanized, once you're more you're busier, it just becomes harder and harder to be able to, at least in your mind, set aside a day. But she made the very interesting, important point, really, that if our elders were able to make the times, and heaven knows they had it harder than us, white-collar professionals, if they could make the time, why can't we? I'm going to put my good food with Evan Kleiman hat on now and ask you, where do you like to get your tamales? 
Oh, well, of course. I'm going to stick to Orange County. L.A. has many, many great tamales. But my two favorite tamales in Orange County, there's a place that makes vegan tamales, La Vegana, in Santana, right next to my wife's store. And, you know, most most tamales, you have to use lard. They're not even kosher, if, you know, if you're using lard. But they make vegan tamales you know, uh, vegan pork, vegan chicken, vegan cheese, and they're absolutely incredible. I, I don't even want to say they almost taste like the real thing because they are the real thing. And then if you want a more unique or a or more regional style tamal, I would go to a restaurant called Las Brisas de Patzingan, which is also in Santana. They specialize in food from La Tierra Caliente, which is a region of southern Mexico and northern Guerrero. And they make this style of tamal called Uchepos, which is like the smaller Sweet, it's a sweet corn, but it's a savory tamal. Oh my god, they are so good, and it's they're really hard to find in Southern California. Oh, tamales for days now. I'm starving. Oh, Gustavo Ariano, Feliz Navidad, by the way. Gustavo, thank you so much. Happy New Year to you, too. We will talk to you in 2024. Prospero Año Nuevo, and gracias, Steve. That's going to do it for us this evening. Coming up in mere moments, it's today explained the unlikely story of the big box bookseller's apparent turnaround. From big villain to company on the brink of bankruptcy to a bright spot in the mostly dismal retail space. That's coming up in mere moments. Tomorrow here on Greater LA for nearly 100 years, meet a group that gets together to eat breakfast and they do some weird rituals too. Bright and early in the morning. That's yours tomorrow on GLA. Join us online, by the way, anytime at kcrw.com slash GLA. Share a story idea. What's on your mind? Grab the podcast, too, all at the website, kcrw.com slash GLA, or get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search KCRW Greater LA. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sue Margulies, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Jocelyn Rohrbach, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordal all helped run the episode this evening. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Thanks for your ear. Have a great night. Thank you.